Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 314th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sue Chesney. Sue is the owner of Delegated Planning, which offers virtual outsourced financial planning support to 55 advisory firms. It is also the co-founder of Planning Zoo, an outsourced financial planning data entry business that helps current and recently graduated students from CFP educational programs to connect advisory firms with the paraplanner support they need. What's unique about Sue, though, is how through Delegated Planning and Planning Zoo, she's pioneered one of the largest outsourced financial planning support firms in the country and shares her firsthand experience of how advisory firms are scaling the delivery of comprehensive financial plans by increasingly separating the front office work of delivering plans to clients from the middle office work of creating them and how firms are increasingly leveraging outsourced providers so they don't have to be responsible for hiring and training those financial planning support employees either. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Sue founded Delegated Planning so that she could bridge a gap between CFP professionals who simply wanted to work on financial plans, and not necessarily with their own clients, and advisors doing financial plans for clients who needed both paraplanning and virtual CFP support services, but again, don't have the time or the resources to hire a full-time employee that they'd have to train and manage themselves. How in a similar vein of supporting advisors, Sue decided to launch Planning Zoo, where she and her partners train and teach aspiring CFP professionals the skills to do data entry with financial planning software using real client cases so they can gain industry experience before graduating, and again, relieve some pressure from advisory firms that need trusted support and don't want to hire and train it themselves. And how Sue has seen that by charging by the hour down to the minute for delegated planning services, the advisors who work with them have been able to better align their own fees with their financial planning offering now that they really see how much time it truly takes for their financial plans to be built for each client. We also talk about how while on the verge of taking over another advisor's business, Sue realized that she really enjoyed the planning work more than working with clients directly. And with the encouragement of a virtual assistant from her former firm and peers in her study group decided to offer her services as an outsourced CFP and launch delegated planning. How by offering flexible schedules, Sue has been able to tap into a unique talent pool of advisors who want to supplement their income while getting their own RAs off the ground and planners who, again, enjoy the planning work but don't necessarily want to work with their own clients directly. And the way that Sue navigates the cybersecurity and E&O risks of serving as an outsourced financial planning service provider by operating as a co-fiduciary with the advisors her firm works with to their end clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Sue shares how, as delegated planning has scaled over the years, she has dealt with the difficult task of shifting herself from being a manager of her growing team into more of a CEO mindset to help scale the business. Why, even though it may feel risky and scary and requires a lot of preparation, Sue feels that it's important for newer advisors to explore the opportunities of one day owning their own firms because of the freedom it brings and the rewarding feeling of helping clients and advancing the industry. And why Sue feels that the key to her success has been enjoying what she does for a living. As in the end, as a business owner, the business is always on your mind, but you don't mind that it's so hard to stop thinking about the work when it's work you enjoy and find fulfilling in helping other advisors. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sue Chesney. Welcome, Sue Chesney, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and and talking about what to me is this rising phenomenon of advisory firms that do financial planning that are starting to outsource parts of the financial planning process. Uh, you know, I, I feel like historically for us advisors is as we started doing financial planning and hopefully like went and get our CFP marks to do more financial planning. So the, the whole implicit thing was like, you're going to do more financial planning, like meet with clients and gather their data and do a discovery meeting, enter into the planning software and do the analysis that CFP board helps teach us how to do and make the plan and <laughs> deliver the plan to the client and implement mm-hmm. it and monitor and go through the whole process. Uh, but there's this this rising shift I'm seeing. And I mean, we see it in some of the, the Kitsis research data that we do, that firms are starting to find different ways to handle some of that, like that middle part of the process, the gathering the data, getting it in the software, doing the analysis, building the plan, the advisor typically still holds on to the I, I get I establish the relationship and I present the plan and recommendations to clients. But a lot of that middle portion gets a little bit more systematized. It becomes a squeeze point. Advisory firms start to grow and scale up, and so some are starting to hire team members just to do this on a dedicated basis. Some are starting to outsource to solve for it on a dedicated basis. I know you've spent the better part of a decade now building one of the larger outsourcing firms that helps us solve for this. And so I'm just I'm excited to talk about like how the planning process is starting to change in our world as these, these parts of the planning process are breaking apart. And it's no longer just a given the advisor will do every step of the financial plan building process. So I, I think as we kick off here, uh, I'd love to start by just having you describe the, the business that you have and what you do in the advisory community today. Sure. So, so Delegated Planning um, is an outsourced financial planning support firm. Um, I think that we, we uh, differentiate ourselves in that we're trying to provide virtual CFP services as opposed to, like you said, the whole middle part, you have the data entry, you've got the what I consider the para-planning and then the virtual CFP service. Um, and if you think about it with an advisory firm that has a number of employees, you can see where that role might, might actually change, um, in a larger firm. They might have maybe newer people, junior people, interns doing the data entry. You might have somebody else doing the analysis, somebody else making the recommendations, and then the lead advisor making the presentation. So, um, so we created or I created, I guess, uh, delegated planning back in 2011 um, to provide planning support. And we have chosen to focus on being the virtual CFP. So meaning not only doing the data entry and the para planning, but taking it further to thinking through strategies and recommendations and how we can improve partnering with the advisor to figure out how can we improve that client's plan, if that makes sense. It, it does, but just take me a little bit further on that distinction. Because again, for better or worse, I feel like to the extent that firms start talking about or thinking about outsourcing some of the the financial planning support, I feel like the number one place that they go is that kind of data entry, get the numbers in the software and maybe build out like the the skeleton of the plan, the template of the plan so the advisor then can 
figure out what we're going to recommend and then get ready to deliver it to the client. And so I'm intrigued that just you're you're making a distinction of a couple of different layers here. Like there's data entry, there's paraplanning that's different than data entry, although I, I don't know that a lot of other advisors think about it differently. So I want to understand the difference. And then there's virtual CFP. So like just help us understand in more detail these three pieces of the difference between data entry, paraplanning, and the virtual CFP part. Sure. So so I think data entry is is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, you you get the the advisor will collect the data, source documents, you know, get the discovery questionnaire, any meeting notes, um, and the individual would then turn around and get that data entered into whatever financial planning software program they're using. They're not making any um, analysis about the data. They're just literally putting it into the correct field in the program. And for most programs, that creates the base case, right? There's no, we're, this is what you have and what you're currently doing if you're saving or whatever, and, and, and that's it. So, and then the next step for me, how I view this is, is the paraplanning piece. Like, okay, let's go to the next step. Let's start analyzing this. What does this look like? How, you know, where are the gaps? Where are the risks? Um, maybe create a, a scenario, a separate scenario, like with the recommendation of, okay, well, if you changed your investment from where you currently are doing it to our 60-40 portfolio, here's how that would change. Does that make sense first? Yep. Yep. So so my data entry is my pure, just collect the numbers, get the numbers into the software. It's I was going to say, Philly, putting data into fields, although obviously, given the complexity of some financial planning software, say it's, it's, it's a little bit more complex than just typing data into fields, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. figure out how to get the planning numbers into the planning software. The para planning is, I guess, is, at least as I would frame it based on what you're discussing, this is more intellectual knowledge worker work. Yes. Like this is the data's in the planning software, we can start looking at the output. We can create a scenario around the output. We can spot like, okay, this client is really far off from actually being able to retire and is probably going to need to save more and do some different things. So we can start spotting the actual areas where we're probably going to be formulating recommendations and doing something different and might even build alternative scenarios to show the impact of what happens if we do something different. Correct. Yeah. So identifying, you know, analyzing that data. So we've got the data in there. Now we're going to analyze what is it telling us. Okay. And then, so then what's the next part? So then the next part is is actually thinking through strategies and coming up with recommendations. So so we know they're underinsured for life insurance, let's say, or disability. So then it's going the next step. Okay, well, how much do they need? Is it a permanent need? Is it a temporary need? If it's temporary, how long? Is it an estate tax issue? So we want a second to die. So really going further and having much more knowledge and expertise in planning. Um, so, So we have 15 planners on our team right now all of which have had many years of experience in front of clients as well as doing planning. So it also comes back to framing of, okay, what is truly realistic for this client? Is this, is this strategy far too complex for this client to implement? And with that, we partner with the advisor because the advisor actually knows the client. We don't know the client. 
so we can come up with all these recommendations. And then the advisor comes back and says, yeah, this person is absolutely not that organized. They're not going to follow this. I'm not even going to recommend it. So this last domain, like thinking through the strategies and recommendations, that's the uh, – like that's what you would characterize as the virtual CFP work? Yes. So if I'm thinking about this in pieces, like I, I thought your insurance example is a good one. So my my data entry tier might take the insurance information that they put on my data gathering form or like look at the insurance policy that they gave and enter in like they currently have $500,000 of term insurance. It's a 20-year term policy. Here's how much they're paying. So like that's the, that's the data entry numbers part. Mm-hmm. The para planner part may be uh, okay, but then we've run a capital needs analysis based on uh, their retirement goals, what a surviving spouse could do on their own if the person passed away, the kid's college needs and the rest. And like it looks like they need $1.5 million of insurance and not $500,000. So my paraplanner determines like they're underinsured. Right. My virtual CFP may then be the one that comes in to figure out, okay, so how are we going to bridge this gap uh well we can buy more term insurance are we gonna need to buy 20 year or 10 year because the time window is a little more limited or 30 year because there's other stuff going on so they also have an estate tax issue which means we're gonna have to wrap this thing into an islet uh do we have other permanent insurance needs tied to the business uh do they have an old annuity that we can do something with so like all these other pieces start cropping in to figure out okay what would my actual concrete strategy or recommendation be and that's my virtual cfp work in the last part exactly that and and one that cropped up recently is thinking through okay this is how you own these assets now what is the ultimate desire for those assets so we've been doing a lot more estate planning stuff recently uh, which is why that popped in my head and so what is the ultimate goal for this asset and how you want it to to eventually be used and by whom, and so thinking through titling of accounts, you know, things, things like that, if that helps. So I get it about the, the three different layers. I'm, I'm thinking about this relative to, I guess, this where a lot of us are as advisors. I think we, for better or worse, you don't typically make these distinctions because historically, I think if we were doing planning, like we, we just did all of this. It's not like I enter the data and then as I'm looking at the data, as I'm entering it, I'm seeing some gaps. So I'm starting to spot my paraplanner stuff. And then as an experienced advisor, I'm thinking about like, okay, well, they're clearly underinsured. So I'm going to be thinking about like what kind of insurance recommendation they're going to need. And I'm just kind of formulating all of that together as I'm doing the planning process. Yes. So just help me think about like, how does an advisor break this apart if I've always done all of it together? Or I don't even know if I'm breaking it apart or if I should break it apart this way. Yeah. And that's the conversation I tend to have with a lot of prospective advisor clients. So they'll call and I'm trying to ferret out, okay, what exactly do you need? Do you really love doing the planning work yourself? You just hate putting the data in? You probably just need a data entry person. Do you want someone to get just the scenario set up and you're going to take it from there and come up with all of your own recommendations? You probably just need a paraplanner. Now, keep in mind, a paraplanner is doing the data entry also. You can have one person do data entry, a different person doing your paraplanning, and a different person doing your virtual CFP work. I don't recommend it because each person, it's going to take a little extra time to understand the client situation. Right. So, it's just every... 
every bit of this requires a knowledge of the client and every handoff means a new person in the scenario exactly that also has to get up to speed so you wouldn't necessarily have like a three person line i I'm mean, not that we would do it this way but i mean it's like the the factory line right process you wouldn't have like the data entry person that does their piece and then hands it off to the pair planner does their piece and hands it off to the CFP like a you know Henry Ford style everybody does their one little thing in the in the process because the ramp up to know the client makes that too burdensome for each person that has to learn or relearn the client yeah and and like you mentioned you're looking at a source document you're immediately getting some red flags Right. You might be looking at a right. property and casualty declaration page and be like, wow, they, they don't have an umbrella or they're underinsured. And so you want to make a note instead of so so we have had people hire us and say, Okay, well, I'm gonna have my assistant or somebody else in the office do the data entry and I just want to pay you for your brain on the strategy piece. And I've done it and it's it's it depends. You know, is the person entering it really know what they're doing? Do they want us to check that work? And confirm that they did it correctly because oftentimes there's a disconnect there. Um, but again, I think there's a there's a time component that gets added because you're going to have to go back and look at a lot of the source documents anyway. So having the same person do all of it is the most efficient than than breaking it apart. Which which I guess in practice is why either a advisors historically just tended to do the whole thing themselves mm-hmm. or or b that when they're hiring someone full time to support them they tend to hire like a full level associate advisor who can who can grab all of those pieces like right. you, know, you you have your cfp so you should be able to at least think through strategy recommendations i may supervise it but like you can think through strategy recommendations and you can do the player planning work and you can do the data entry work. Maybe ideally that would have been handed off to someone else. But you know, if I'm the senior advisor building my business, like better you doing it at your salary than right. me doing it at mine, because I I gotta go grow the business. So that's a good handoff. So I guess that just that clicks for me of why it it feels like most firms either have, at least in the past, either just retained this and the advisors did it themselves, or they got that associate advisor right hand person who then handles all that all that stuff and the advisor simply is reviewing the plan at the end to, to make sure we're formulating the right recommendations and putting the right action items in place for clients right yeah and but then you have to think back okay so there's a lot of smaller firms that either don't want to hire they're not great managers potentially they don't want to deal with the whole hr and then having an employee um, and thinking through, is that the best use of their time? Is it really the best use of the advisor's time to sit there and look at a property and casualty declaration page? Right. And, you know, as opposed to delivering to them, here are the red flags from this. And then if the advisor wants to go check it out, they can. So, and so is that the distinction of who starts to look at this as a, as an outsourcing opportunity? Is it, it's the, it's the solo advisor Who's got enough of this stuff that they should probably either they should probably should be delegating it or they're just parts they don't want to do. I just I don't, I don't want to do the data entry more. I don't want to frame up the base case. I'd rather just you know do the do the recommendation stuff at the end that I like doing. I like doing the strategies part. Uh, so either either they need to delegate or they've just got parts that they don't want to do anymore that they're handing off, but they don't necessarily want to hire a full time associate advisor in the firm that they then have to manage and make payroll on and all the other pieces that go yeah. with that. 
So they say, maybe an outsourcing firm can do this for me on a contract basis. Yes. And that was sort of the original business model when I when I started this. It was sort of being a part-time CFP for a number of firms. Okay. Um, and when I started it, I thought, okay, this is great. I can, you know, I will, I will continue to even work with their end client, communicate with them. Um, but I, and we can go down this road separately, but I quickly realized from a compliance standpoint, it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, oh, because, because you were, because you were actually in communication with the clients as well. Yeah. And I, that requires you to keep all the correspondence and have separate emails. And then Dr. Smith would call and you have no idea which advisor they were working with because there's five Dr. Smiths. And so you can see where that, that goes. Yes. I can, I can envision how quickly that goes downhill. Yeah. Okay. It, um, but so that was sort of the original idea. And, and that I would say is the majority of our advisory firms. So we support, I don't know, about 55 firms right now. Um, the majority are smaller firms or firms that want to be completely uh, virtual. They don't. They don't just don't want to have staff to manage. However, I do recall getting a larger firm that had three partners, five CFPs, and two or three client service um, support people. And I, I just was like, why would you hire us? You've got five CFPs. I don't really understand. And and he told me, and it made sense at the time was we. We have promised these services to our clients, and I think they were doing at least two two meetings per year. One was a plan update, and we are we are so busy servicing the client, doing the things that we promise that we can't focus on the business. And so at that point, they were using, um, oh gosh, was it DB Cams still from the eighties? Oh, yeah. And they yes, were trying to find a manager. new, yeah, they needed a new program. I mean, could you imagine the disruption of switching? historical yep. data 40 years and they're like yeah, we it's can't. painful yeah if you were early days db cams or early days portfolio center and you you literally have data well back into the 90s mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean that took you know that's probably an 18 month process to transition that data and how do you how do you continue to service your clients while you're doing that that was one project they had another i think was they wanted to move physical offices um, they were trying to figure out career paths for people so some of the junior they wanted to move some of the junior advisors up um, to be more client facing um, so so we were stepping in to do some of that we were taking on new we were mostly doing a handful of new client plans but the majority of plan updates for them for their meetings okay. interesting i you know it's it strikes me, and we we are, uh, you know, we've been doing some research on the Kitsis platform, just in how advisors sort of structure and manage their their teams uh, as they grow, and and have seen something very similar that most firms seem to bring peer planners in in at, at like either two places in the process. It's either uh, like you've hired a. Uh, your first hire is usually a client service administrator. Just mm-hmm. take like paperwork stuff mm-hmm. off your plate. The next hire is usually an associate CFP type to really sit second chair in all the meetings. But that's an expensive position if you have not hired before mm-hmm. or you've only hired administrative staff before. And so for a lot of firms, before they're ready to go that full-time associate CFP, we found a lot start hiring uh, part-time para planners, outsourced para planners to to fill that gap. Like, yes. there's there's too many plans for me to do all the plans and the client support work because now I probably have 
30, 40, 50 clients. Like there's there's too much planning work to do all of it myself, but there's not quite enough revenue for me to hire a second full-time person at the cost of an associate CFP in today's very competitive marketplace. Yeah. So so they they take on a uh, an outsourced pair planner. And if they don't want to scale up very big and manage people, they may stay at that level indefinitely. Uh, yeah, you know, my very first uh, advisor client, that's exactly what happened. It got to the point where I, you know, I called her and said, this isn't really sustainable. Uh, it's not very cost effective for you. I think you've hit the point where you probably need to hire another person. And so I helped her find the other person um, and, and basically trained him on the part that I was doing for her firm. And then he took over half the client base and was doing business development on for the firm and I kept the other half. Um, I've had it happen where a planner left. So I stepped in and did the work until the new planner was hired, trained them on what I did for that firm, left six months Mm -hmm. later. They're like, we're busy again. We need you. And so I think it's five times for that firm. We've come and gone (laughs) helping them just plug in when they need us and and leave when they don't. Yeah. The the other scenario that we saw starting to crop up in the data, ironically, I, again, is actually a version of the the larger firm that you were talking to, which is we we see firms start start looking at at paraplanner type support again when they get out to four to five person teams because usually by then, like there's an owner, mm-hmm. there's a second lead advisor that's handling relationships that the owner's like bringing in and handing off. Mm-hmm. There's an associate CFP that's usually sitting second chair and everything, but they're in a lot of meetings because there's two senior advisors yes. to support now. Mm-hmm. And then there's a client service administrator supporting all of them. And so there's a good amount of clients and a good amount of revenue, but there's a lot of clients, like there's just a lot of financial plans to do and analyze and update. And the associate CFP doesn't have a lot of time because they're in a lot of meetings with the other yes. two doing the client facing support work. And so they hit another crossroads where either you got to make the investment to hire another full-time paraplanner who's not revenue producing, but just leverages up the other three uh, mm-hmm. planners in the office or outsourcing appears again to for the firms that say, no, no, we just want to hire the full client-facing folks. We'll outsource everything else so that we can keep our payroll more lean. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I'd say that the other... F- advisors that tend to support us, they they want to remain smaller. Maybe they want to remain as a solo, but they really want a second set of eyes, right? They want the expertise of, am I missing anything? Mm. Uh, you know, should I be looking at it differently? Is there a better way to do this? I, we get a lot right. of sort of consulting questions like, how can we make this more efficient? And, and how do I communicate this? I, I have had a number of calls of just framing like, the plan success is not where I want it to be. How do I frame this with the client? <laughs> well, I, I've seen just so many advisors over the years who are solos and on their own. Like, just it's lonely not to have anyone else to bounce mm-hmm. client scenarios and ideas off of. Especially if you started in a a larger firm environment where, like, there were other people to talk to and commiserate with. Uh, but you went out on your own for whatever reason you wanted to go on your own mm-hmm. around around independence. Like, good news, you can do whatever you want and don't have to deal with the large firm. Bad news, like you don't have coworkers in the office the way right. that you did right. in a large firm. So just there's there's no one to talk scenarios through to, with if you don't have a a study group or some other kind of community group to work with. 
Yeah, there's that. And then there's also, you know, when you get the one-off client that that has a situation that not most, most of your clients don't have, right? Like the student loan forgiveness. Right. Um, so thing. just so specialized like, oh, scenarios. Yeah. yeah. So now I've got to go research this whole thing um, for this one client that it may never pop up again. Right. <laughs> and, this, and the same comes is true probably with the um, financial planning programs, right? So they're, they're constantly coming out with updates and it's like, okay, do I want to be an expert in the program? Right. Or do I just need to know how it works so I can use it for presentations with the client and explain it? But I don't really need to know the nuances of, oh, they changed, they moved the healthcare entry from here to over here <laughs> and we got to watch out for the Irma and this, and, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, they changed how you do the executive comp option stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a little module. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, lots of good memories. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for firms that, that go through this processing per your comment of you know, it sort of it creates a lot of client knowledge overhead to have too many handoffs. Yeah. Do like of those three pieces as you frame like the data entry, the pair planner, and the and the virtual CFP, like do firms typically engage for all three of those? Or are there some that still try to carve up pieces of that? You know, I I've got a client service administrator, like they can actually enter the data. Um, you know, he doesn't know that much about like planning things. He's not a CFP. It's like he, he can't do the para planner work and the rest. But, like I got mm-hmm. a person that can enter the data, do the rest. Or, mm-hmm. hey, I like making the strategies and recommendations because I like learning all that planning stuff. But please just like do the data entry and set the base scenario. I mean, do you have <laughs> advisors that still carve it up that way? Or because of the handoff dynamic, does it tend to be very all or none? If you're going to hand it off, you're really just going to hand off everything or you're not. I would say 95% have us the whole thing. I I just got off the phone this morning with someone who really just needed data entry. And, you know, I called them. I was like, you know, we're, we're expensive. I have another solution for you. I mean, they literally were like, we just want you to get the base case set up. Um, and their planner had left and they were trying to hire somebody. And I said, okay, we could, we could do it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm always willing to try it. And we just explain the pitfalls of it if they want to try it. And, you know, and usually the first time through we'll be like, okay, well, are you sure that the rental income that you listed as the money guide pro income is net of expense of gross of tax? And they're like, oh no, I just took the gross rent off the tax return. It's like, okay, well, that's not the number (laughs) that's going to be flowing into the plan. Right. So, so we usually catch a few of those things, which um, then they start to rethink, okay, is it really worth Maybe it's just better just to have the person do the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe I just need to stop doing this myself. Yeah, yeah. So how does this work from a, like a business pricing perspective then? Like how do, you, how do you charge for these kinds of services? How do advisors budget around these types of services? Yeah, so we, and I struggled with this, um, we bill hourly to the minute because every plan is so unique and every advisor is so unique. Um, I can, I tend to give estimates and it also depends on the program they're using, right? Navaplan requires a whole lot more input than Money Guide does. Um, so it depends on the program. Generally, it depends on how organized the information comes to us. So some solo advisors are just take whatever the client gave them and hand it off and tell us to sift through it and figure out what we need. Um, we right. have others. So, yeah, I'm yep. using some, some are like, 
I've got a really rigorous data gathering process. Here's all the information. It's perfectly meticulously documented in my data gathering form. And others are like, yeah, client uploaded 17 PDFs to the vault. Here you go. More like that's 50. <laughs> yeah, here are the 50 documents. Yeah, I guess that's then, true. That, that's probably low at 17. <laughs> yeah, here's the 50 documents, but we only really needed 20. But we're going to look at them if you're giving right. them to us because we don't know. Um, so there's that piece. There is the, are we entering all the accounts down to the holding data or are you linking accounts? So there's okay. ways to get efficient there. Um, estate planning. So one of the questions I always ask is, you know, what, what do you consider a financial plan? What are all the areas that you cover? Mm. Um, so estate planning, you know, a lot of people check that and I say, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean you just ask them if they have documents and were they reviewed recently? Or does that mean you're actually reading the documents and having like you would want us to read the documents and illustrate visually how the assets are going to transfer, who you've named in these different positions. So we don't get that often, but maybe for some advisors, larger clients, um, it's labor intensive the first time, but people don't change their estate planning documents that often. So you can pull it out at every meeting, say, hey, has anything changed? Your child is now 21. Your will says you're going to pay it out at 25 outright. Are you still comfortable with that? Or do we need to adjust that? You know, and so, so it is nice, but it's labor intensive, right? And so I was just curious, how do you track time internally, hourly down to the minute? Toggle. We use toggle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great because not only, so we bill monthly in arrears for work done the previous month, but you know, plans can go beyond a month. So what's nice is we can pull a report for the whole year and say, here's how much time and money you spent on this client. And you should compare it to your revenues for that client and Mm. make sure that that's a profitable venture for you. Because I don't think a lot of advisors have no idea how much time it takes them to do a financial plan or how much time they spend supporting a, a client. Yeah, I it, it strikes me that for a lot of advisory firms there's there's I guess from double edged sword like the, there's nothing like putting dollars on the line by paying someone to do right. this work <laughs> in a hard dollar cost. Yeah. To a to really see how much the planning service costs and just how how invest how I was going to say how invested you are into the planning but like how how complex and expensive the planning process is that you've created that you're delivering to clients. And then secondarily to raise the question, like, so is that actually really aligned to the fees that you're charging? Right. Or are you undercharging? Yeah. I mean, another, another labor intensive piece is the deliverable, right? So some folks will have us write a 30 page financial plan. Right. And others will just have you print out the report from the program and go from there. Um, yeah, it's interesting to kind of see how that plays out. And and so what's the what's the actual pricing structure or or rate? Like is it different hourly rates depending on the the nature of the work or who the person is or do you just have a single standard rate for everything? Sing, yeah, it's a single standard rate. Right now it's 160 an hour, although I haven't raised it since gosh, 2018. Okay. So I am I am kind of relooking at all of that, <laughs> both and, what I pay the contractors and and what we charge. And I guess per your earlier discussion at at one sixty an hour, you look if I'm an advisor that is ideally billing my time at two to three hundred dollars an hour or more for client facing work, like this is a good deal for me to delegate. 
if I could chain my CSA to do some of the data entry, it's probably a better deal for me to train the CSA internally if that's the only thing I need is someone to do data entry. But if I'm going to do the whole thing all the way through, it still becomes cost effective to outsource because otherwise I have to add up costs with the handoffs anyways, which doesn't save me in the end. Yeah, exactly. So so I am curious just for for being a firm that you know charges by the hour down to the minute invoices every single part of every single financial plan down to the minute i'm really curious from your perspective like what do advisors do that makes the time, the planning process more time consuming and what could we be doing differently that saves time because in in your context it literally saves cost but uh like what do we do that makes it longer or could change to make it more efficient? Mm, Good question. So the data gathering up front. So we definitely have gotten calls over the years. I want to start adding planning as a service to my current investment offering. And I have that conversation like, do you understand the labor involved to just add quote unquote planning as a service? (laughs) Um, And so you're trying to explain, here's all the data you need to collect and you know, and then if they ask a question and they say, "Oh yes, I have this," well, that that begs five more questions. So it's helpful mm-hmm. if the upfront the advisor knows what to collect and understands why why it's needed, right? So you don't have to have somebody go back to the client five times Be, and say because oh, otherwise the advisor who isn't as experienced with it just says like, "Hey, I gave them a standard data gathering form and." And here like, go. here it is. And, you know, they include their tax returns. You get their tax returns. Like there's three schedule E's here. Like they have a whole bunch of real estate. Do you have all the information on the real estate? Right. Oh, I didn't know they had a real estate. Right. Cool. I, I, go follow up with them and <laughs> grab that right. data and let me know. And now we're, and now suddenly we're in the back and forth process because pers- uh, a firm that hasn't done planning before doesn't realize that you might want to check for the rental real estate and here's where you look for it on the tax return. Yeah, and it and it's even firms that have done planning, but you know they've got their CSA doing the data gathering, and they're not they're not planners, so they don't really right. know what to ask for. Um, so you always have the document checklist, right? We we have all of our own templates that we're happy to share, or we try to use the advisor's version because they have a very specific way they want to ask questions. They've been doing it that way for a long time, so we try to work the first couple projects following their process, and then we meet and do a debrief and say, okay, how do we make it more efficient? But if someone doesn't have anything, we've got plenty of templates to start with. But yeah, you, they, you know, they'll check off that they've got, um, well, the tax return's a good, I, good example. Oh, so there's, they're writing off mortgage interest. There's nothing about a mortgage in here. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly there's something, did they pay it off? I mean, maybe they paid it off. I don't know. We need right. to find out. So, you know, that adds a lot of time that I don't think it's accounted for on their um, CSA work or the advisor depending so um, mm-hmm. so quality of data gathering which i guess i mean i'm presuming ideally that gets solved by advisors building a better checklist of just like yes. ask your client for all of these things like if you give the client a checklist that includes the mortgage statement they'll give you a mortgage statement and we don't have to look at the tax return see there's a mortgage interest deduction and then come back to you and ask you why there's no mortgage statement yes yeah, I remember we brought on an, an advisor who I think he was in the four hundred one k space originally, and he started his own RIA. And so we gave him the document checklist. He's like, "Well, I can't. This is really personal information. I can't ask for all this." 
I'm like, well, what do you think we're doing? Like, this is personal stuff. And so we literally had to do a table to say why we needed each piece so that he could kind of communicate that to the client, like why we needed a tax return. Um, and so is that actually something that you've you've built and provide to the advisors you work with? Like, hey, if you don't have something, here's a, here's a document checklist. Yes. Yes. I have a lot of templates I've created. I mean, I've kept them over the years. We, we, we tend to start with it. So, um, we have, I have one advisor client. Um, I love her to death. She works with nurses. I mean, nurses are a great market. They're they're organized. They follow a plan. (laughs) I mean, her data gathering form is four pages and it's got everything that you need on it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, if they have nothing, we've got something to start with. We work with the advisor to kind of fine tune it for their types of clients. And then if we find we have to keep asking a follow-up, then clearly we're not asking it correctly at the beginning. So let's improve the way we ask for it. I guess that's just part of the nice effect of the work that you do and how you do it is you're doing this for so many clients repeatedly on an ongoing basis that, uh, it, you know, if something is persistently not providing you the information that you need, like you get to see it in your repeatable process. And yeah, it's our problem. It's not their problem. (laughs) (laughs) So we get to see how a lot of other folks do it. So we get to kind of see, Oh, well, that's a great way to think about it. (laughs) Let's, let's try that. So, so data gathering becomes an area where a lot of sort of time suck and wastage happens if the firm doesn't know to ask the right questions up front and or doesn't have a good document checklist to solve yep. for it up front. Yep. So There's what, that. Uh, like else? I said, the, the manually en- manual entry of accounts and their holdings. And with, with integrations now, it's sort of like, why wouldn't you just link the accounts? The, the so using – you know, e-money, right capital, all the tools that have account aggregation, just having your clients set up their account aggregation to link all their investment accounts. Yeah. And what I, what I tell advisors, you know, a great way to do it is quote your price and say, you'll knock off X. If Mr. Client, I'll knock off X dollars if you're willing to link your account. And if you're worried about us having access, all you have to do is change the password. I mean, they break so easily, right? <laughs> it's very yeah. easy to, to reverse that decision later. Um, so, you know, and maybe you quote a little higher price than you normally would to try and motivate them and then knock off, you know, $250, $500 off the, the plan price. <laughs> okay. I like that. I yeah. like that. This yeah. It gives, gives people a little nudge, little skin in the game of like, here's why you might want to take a few moments to link your accounts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, um, what else saves what time? What else? Uh, so again, if we're digging into estate documents, that's just, you have to read through it and you have to understand language and all that stuff. Um, I, I would say the other biggest piece is the deliverable. So deliverables really vary by advisory firm that we support. Um like I said, we've got some that will have a 30 page word document, right? So, so we, you know, and a lot of it's static. What is life insurance? Why is it important? Here's what you have. Here's what we recommend. But having to write that and check it for grammar and, you know, and you're, you just, every time something changes, you got to go back and double check everything that takes a long time. Um, we have the one page plan, right? people that want to really get it down to a one-page plan. The majority of our advisors, we do an executive summary, Um, really just trying to focus on 
what we think are the most is the most important message the client needs to hear. And if they want to dig into the plan, we'll do the printout from eMoney or Money Guide and they can go dig into all the numbers later. So not necessarily a lot of custom plan writing as your standard, but we'll do a very specific executive summary for the client and then essentially supplement that with the the standardized financial planning the software output, output from, if yeah. people want to want to look at their numbers or dig into dig into where the numbers came from for the engineering yes. clients. Yeah, and and what's interesting is um, you know where in the process it, some of our deliverables are internal. It's never client facing. Some of our the majority are client facing, um, so they're very customized to that advisor and how they like to present information you know, PowerPoint, Excel, Word. Um, and then you've got folks that will present in the program, right? Looking at the right. what if area of Money Guide or in Right Capital and do some co-planning there. And so that the write-up won't happen till after. So here, here are some choices. Here are some scenarios we built. And here's the impact of those. What do you think, Mr. Client? And then they can say, okay, yeah, I think we can we can probably do this. Say, okay. And then we do the write-up and say all of those things. Interesting. So the uh, the firms that do it more collaboratively, more co-planning style, you'll do the data entry and I guess like formulate initial recommendations or some summary, but then mm-hmm. the advisor will do their live collaborative co-planning thing, right? A decision center, play zone, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, figure out which things the client actually wants to do. So like, I'm not going to, pr- I'm not going to print you three scenarios. We're just going to grab the little sliders in the meeting and you can see what each of the three scenarios does by mm-hmm. dragging around the sliders. You tell me which one you want to move forward with. And then after the client meeting, we'll write up the plan with the path that you chose. Right. Right, because a lot a of the meeting deliverable. A lot of the other recommendations are really based on that initial yep. retirement goal. So if that changes, well, then that might change your insurance recommendation. That might change, you know, your disability recommendation because now we have to save more in order to achieve this. So that means if you get disabled, we need more money coming in. So does that does that save time in the process because you don't have to make the big deliverable up front, or does it just shift the time in the process because now you still have to make the deliverable after the fact and you have to debrief on the meeting after the fact to figure out what's going to go in the deliverable after the fact. No, I think it actually, it's, it doesn't it doesn't take more time. Uh, I would think that it either saves time or it's the same amount because then we're not writing up five scenarios, like you said. Um, oh, I guess it's, yeah, it's it. Well, I guess the, the write-up's happening either way, but printing three to five different scenarios and building them out just takes time. Right. And and your recommendation might change on the scenario they chose. So now you're writing two different right. recommendations. You'd be like, well, if you decide to do this, if you decide if you if you're willing to work longer, <laughs> then here's the recommendation for this. But if you're if you really want to retire now, if that's your priority, then we need to look at it this way. And so it kind of cuts down on all of that. And personally, I I think co-planning is the most effective way to communicate with the client because they can literally you're not telling them what to assume, you're letting them have some impact on them. They're having buy-in on those decisions. Say, okay, look, your your plan is looking successful. And they say, well, I'm really worried about inflation. You're like, great, let's just plug in a higher inflation rate and here's what happens. And now let's talk about that. Um, As opposed to us us advisors deciding and giving them a static report and say, here's here's what it is. 
So, so it sounds like sort of four primary domains where advisors maybe either can save time or may unwittingly add time and costs. Like not a good data gathering process that creates back and forth. Uh, manual entry of accounts instead of using account aggregation to pull the the balances in. Uh, if you do estate planning, because just if you're going to go through the documents, mm-hmm. that's not a lightweight process because they're just they're not short documents. There's a lot of stuff there, and then how you produce your deliverables and whether you're making long deliverables versus one page plans or a more collaborative planning style approach that cuts down on the scenario printing. Right. Yeah, I would say the majority of our advisors do have us write an executive summary that's probably three or four pages. And that hits on all the topics, cash flow, emergency reserves, debt management, that kind of stuff. Because, you know, there's a lot of planning that gets done that is not in the program. These programs are just fancy calculators, right? Um, And mainly focusing on retirement. So it's not really looking at cash reserves. It's not really looking at property and casualty coverage or titling for asset preservation liability reasons. So there's there's a lot of other um, analysis that goes in outside of the program. Right. Debt pay down. That that can take time. (laughs) So I guess walk us through a little bit more just if an advisor actually wants to do outsourced planning support, how does it work at the individual client level? Like just what's what's the actual process of how the steps flow and like who does what and what things go back and forth and when, like how does it yeah. actually work? Sure. So, so first we have an engagement agreement that sets up the roles and responsibilities of the advisor firm and our firm. Then we go through an onboarding process where we try to capture their default planning assumptions. So every advisor, you know, will use their own inflation rate, their own longevity. And it's really just a starting point for their plans. And of course, on a client by client basis, we can adjust. Um, But what's helpful, well, not only is it helpful that we're always starting at the same place, but if we're doing a plan update, so if there's information already in there and we're just going in to update it, we're going to double check it against those plan assumptions and call out anything that's different and find out if that was intentional or if that just got missed and we're supposed to update that now. Um, so the advisor will fill that out. We'll have a Zoom call with myself, the advisor, and the planner supporting that advisor. So we do assign, we do match a planner with the advisor. So they're working with the same planner um, throughout the engagement Okay. Which is helpful because you get to know the person, how they think, kinds of scenarios so, they like to see. So you've got 15 folks internally that may be doing planning work for for the firms. But if I'm a firm, so it's like if I'm a firm, I'll have a specific person or yes. for yes. any particular client, I'll have a specific person. No, for your firm. Okay. So we'll, so we'll know who we're working with. I guess just over time, we get to know them. They get to know our idiosyncrasies, all that good right. stuff. Yep. Okay. Um, so once that's ready, then we're ready to get going. When the advisor has a client project, we'll say the Smith plan, they let us know. We send a work order. It's electronic document. Um, and it's really a checklist of what is it you are hiring us to analyze. So it's got retirement projections, education, funding, survivor needs, disability needs, long-term care, estate, tax, you know, the, the topics, right? And so oh, interesting. Because, because you know, truly, like you know, if if I don't specify it, like you're gonna do everything. And if I really just wanted to do like a 
slightly simpler plan. I'm going to get really unhappy when I get an invoice for like 10, 20 hours and I thought it was going to take you three. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And really it's more the opposite happens. Uh, they'll check off retirement and then we'll get in there and say, hey, this is a, a young family with a single income earner. Are you sure you don't want to look at disability? Because it's a huge risk. Like we're still going to call out the big risks and say, I think this might be a risk, but I'm not, I don't want to spend, long-term care is a good one. I don't want to, we don't want to spend a bunch of time looking at long-term care if the advisors already had that conversation with the client and they're not interested. Right, right. So that, that sort of gives you the scope of the project. And that actually came from, came out of uh, working. So we are a registered investment advisor in the state of Colorado. Okay. Uh, We are, which is strange because we don't, talk to end clients and we don't provide investment advice or manage money. But um, you're, so you're based in Colorado. I'm based in Colorado okay. and Colorado interprets the rules that if you provide financial planning services, you must register. And it is a state by state issue, which makes it very complex on an advisor client basis, as well as hiring planners. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So they were like, we need it. You should have a, you should have a contract for every single project. And I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to make this easier? And so we have this one page work order, basically it's electronic. They just click the areas they want us to analyze and that kicks off the project. Because, because by definition, the firm's already been onboarded. It's like the firm has a contract with you. Right. To provide services. And so that's why this boils down like this is a work order for each particular client to make sure we're all clear about the scope of engagement. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, So then the advisor would, so it's really important to us that the advisor own and control all client data. Um, So they would dictate what kind of file sharing service they want to use. If it's e-money, we usually just use the e-money vault because we're already getting in there anyway. Uh, Right Capital, same thing. Money Guide doesn't have a vault yet, at least. And so, you know, folks can use Dropbox, Box, ShareFile, Google Drive, you know, whatever they choose. And that way they can cut off access at any time if they choose to. Okay, so that so that's that's for basically the the boatload of um, the boatload of client PDFs of all the different documents. Yes. Like, where are we putting them so that the advisor owns and controls the data for their client, but you can get to it right. to do what you need to do as the uh, right. as the planning support service. So we do have because we're an RIA, we are now subject to the same record retention rules as everybody else. So we have to right. download and save them and keep them. So anything used to create um, or update a financial plan, we have to maintain for five years beyond termination. Okay. Um, so we do encourage advisors to redact unnecessary PII, like social security numbers from tax returns. Okay. Now it's time versus money, right? So if you're a solo and you're like, here, just take it and do it, you know, you can do a search and redact in PDF and find them all and redact them. And before, so we'll redact. Um, we'll try to redact everything before we save it if we don't need it. Okay. So the documents are uploaded. Um, we shoot for a three-week turnaround, and we break that down as you've got them uploaded. We need about a week to work it into our flow uh, to review all of the documents that were provided, create any assumptions and notes, any red flags, any observations, any questions that we have. Um, and then we would shoot the advisor an email saying, okay, here are some things that we want to discuss. And we, we actually have a call and review it together. So we, we make sure that we've got time. We're, we're, we're on the same page for these assumptions before we get too deep into this. Here's what we need more information on. 
you know, half the time the advisor knows the answer and it just didn't get imparted in the documents. It was more from conversations right. with them. And the other half, they have to go back to the client and get more information. Okay. Um, well, I should then, just expect as the advisor, like once once I've given you the data in week one, you're getting it all initially into the software, you're spotting any issues or gaps, and like we're going to have a check-in call. Yes. Of, like, is it all there or where are the gaps or what's going on? Yeah. And, and actually, the first couple projects with a new advisor, we won't get everything entered in um, because what we don't want to do is have to go back and fix something. So until we've, we've worked a few and we're comfortable with how they work and that, that they mm. understand the process. Um, so we're trying to avoid that kind of issue. Because it's expensive to repeat ex- that. Yeah, to go back. $60 an hour. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so then the second week, uh, assuming we have everything, it's getting everything entered and doing our preliminary analysis, running some scenarios. And then we meet again and look at the results with the advisor and say, okay, here's the red flags. Here's what we're thinking. But that's when we need the advisor to provide their input about the client. So if we maybe suggest that they work a couple of years longer because it improves success significantly between delaying Social Security and the extra income and the extra saved years and the fewer years of spending, they can say, this guy's got one foot out the door. Like he's ready to retire yesterday if he could. So let's get rid of that. Let's assume he's able to save a little bit more right. between now and retirement and can spend a little bit less. And so let's solve for that. So so ideally coming out of that second meeting, we know the scenarios that they are going to want to present. Um, and then the third week, whether that's you know the next week or after they present, is creating deliverables. And that piece, like I said, it, every advisor is a little bit different. So it could be a five-minute thing of just printing the report from the program. It could be us writing a 50-page document. It could be us doing a five-page executive summary. Um, everyone kind of has their own deliverable. And you're, you don't impose any particular version of the deliverable on them. Caveat's just like, I'm, I'm billing you for the time. You tell me what you want. Right, right. But I can tell you, it really gets old writing really long things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it is funny. People are like, well, you could slow things down and take longer. We have enough to do and nobody wants to do that. <laughs> it's, it's boring, you know, writing over and over the same concept of Roth conversions. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets old. And so what we do for each advisor, so every advisor kind of has their own process checklist that we create for that advisor so that we don't miss any steps. And if they have a particular way they like to describe something, we just make a verbiage library and copy and paste it in and customize it. So if they like to explain it this way, then we will use that in your deliverable. Okay. Interesting. So if I'm working with you over time, you'll you'll help me start to templatize what I'm doing if I wasn't mm-hmm. doing that already. Right. Right. And so then then just I get my deliverable at the end and if I've got any issues or modifications, I can come back to you and otherwise like I've got my deliverable and I can go schedule. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and ideally the advisor is going to bank in at least a week to kind of look through it in case, and this has happened, we missed something on the cash flow. Either it was our fault or the advisor's fault or it didn't get caught for whatever reason. Now that changes the whole plan and we've got to go back right. and fix it. So. Okay. And, um, and otherwise, like essentially week four is advisor does their final review and schedules and schedules with the client. Yeah. And then we usually keep the project open until after the meeting just to see if there's any updates, like post-meeting updates right. that need to be done. So sounds like, I guess, th- three-week three process on your end, 
mm-hmm. typically going to end out, I guess, four from the client's end from when they send data into the advisor until the advisor is actually coming back to them to schedule and deliver because of the three-week process you've got in the middle. Right. Unless they're going to present the draft plan, right, before we write the deliverable. Okay. How often do you see advisors that do a version of that where they want to present a draft plan, have you firm up the deliverable, and then present the final plan? Uh, I'd say a third. Okay. And I've got a a couple of advisors that, and I think this is a great process, is they'll send out the assumptions to the client in advance and highlight any remaining questions. So after we've reviewed the assumptions and we've got all our questions Mm. down, we'll send it and get buy-in from them. Again, that will prevent future updates like, oh, we didn't put in, we don't spend that much on a car or we forgot our vacations or whatever. I'm assuming your social security is this and it's going to inflate at 2% and the client's going to come back and say, no, no, I don't think it's going to be there that much. I want you to cut it way back. At least we can have that conversation now. Mm Mm-hmm rather than having you blow up the plan presentation because you didn't like our social security assumption. Or we create another scenario right? to illustrate that, just to cover that concern. So so from a time invested into the plan, I, I get that it, it varies by some of those factors of quality of data gathering and length of deliverable, but it, is, there a, is there an average for you overall of like how many how many hours you actually spend building a typical financial plan? There is an average. It, again, it depends on the program and it also depends on how comprehensive the plan is. So so what I will give you is for a comprehensive plan, meaning we're at least glancing at the, at the estate planning documents. Uh, we are um, looking at property and casualty, we're looking at the tax return, maybe running some scenarios and holistic plan for people, maybe doing some social security analysis outside of. And so you'll you'll you you'll pull an add on tools like that as well, uh, a holistic plan, tax analysis, uh, mm-hmm. third party software, social security analysis. Yes. Now and again, it's important that the advisor own and control the client data. So all the work we do is is generally under an admin license of that advisor so that if and when we terminate our engagement, they have their data updated. Okay. Um, so, okay. So back to average. So I would say, and, and again, depends on the deliverable. So it can shrink or expand depending on all those factors we've already discussed. Sure. Uh, money guide, I would say eight to 10 hours. Okay. Uh, E-money, probably 12, maybe to 15. NavaPlan is over 15. Just because there's so many more. It's very, it's an excellent program. It's very tech sensitive. So you've got a lot more fields you got to pay attention to. And then you do work in Right Capital as well? Yeah, Right Capital. Right Capital is sort of in between because those folks tend to do a lot more co-planning. Okay. Because it's got a very collaborative planning software interface. Yeah. And so a lot of them don't even have us write deliverables from that. They'll have the conversation present online and then print the report to the vault and just say that that's the deliverable. Which means you end out with a much shorter engagement because it's really just the data, the data entry and building out the base scenario. Well, and still doing the analysis and we still have the conversation with the advisor about here's the recommendations that, or here are the big risks we're seeing. Here's what we would recommend or or at least have this discussion with the client. So does that put you like back in the money guide zone of eight to 10 hours? Is it even shorter than that? I think it might be shorter. 
Okay. Okay. Because it doesn't go as in depth, you know, it, it really depends. It, it doesn't go as in depth in some of the other areas that Money Guide does, although it's improving all the time. So I shouldn't say that I haven't looked at it in a little while. <laughs> that's well, one that's hard because they update, you know, they send out updates every week. And you're like, oh gosh, I did a workaround last time for this plan. How did, what, now they've fixed it. And now I have to remember yeah. which, how did I do the workaround? <laughs> yes, the good, the good news in air quotes is they keep making updates. Like yeah. it keeps getting better, but you keep breaking the workarounds that I had for the old thing because we've yeah. all done now I'm double counting. Yeah. <laughs> so out of curiosity, like, do, do you have a favorite for which one, which planning software you like working in the most for the work that you do? So um, each of our planners knows anywhere from one to three programs. Um, and if, if you're asking me personally, I personally prefer Money Guide, uh, mostly from familiarity. I've used it for the longest um, and it and it's not cash flow based. So you're not yeah. getting into to all of that stuff. So so how does it work from the the licensing? end of the of the planning software something like for my individual advisor and like my clients are are in my instance of my planning software so do i have to give you or like your firm do i have to give you access to my planning software do i have to buy another license for you on top of my license like how does that work it depends on the program so e-money um you would so we have a, a license for e-money and so you would okay. share the plan with the username of the planner supporting you. So they have their own e-money license. That's the only program that requires it. Um, right Capital, the advisor can buy an admin license. I think it's $35 a month now. And you can start and stop it at any time. Um, okay. Money Guide gives you a free admin license. Okay. Um, Holista Plan gives you a free admin license. Which I think is smart. I'm kind of surprised eMoney doesn't do that because really that's not the best use of advisors' time. I mean, they have a para plan. Yeah. I think they called it para planning license, but you couldn't even get to the reports. I'm like, well, what, and, what's the point of that? <laughs> and then what about what about Navaplan? Navaplan, you know, it's funny. So I've got one planner who supports Navaplan, and she has two advisors that use it. And I almost never get calls. So I believe Which I, she, I guess just part of the overall decline and adoption of NAVA plan. It's just not yeah. as widely used amongst yeah. at least amongst the independents as it used to be. Right. Right. So I believe she's logging in under an advisor's the advisor's license. Okay. So your planning work, like is this I guess I just want to be clear, like this is purely the the planning stuff not the investment related side. Correct. Well, so you're not you're not doing investment proposal generation supporting on that kind of work. This is very specifically the financial planning side of things. Absolutely. So I like to look at it as okay, if we can get, you know, we're using the advisors going to dictate in the program what model they want us to use if they've built portfolio models in their program, if they're allowing mm -hmm. the program to calculate the return and standard deviation based on what's entered or if they're going to apply, you know, a 60-40 portfolio, whatever that is for okay. that program. So if they've got models that you you essentially, you'll build their models into the assumptions part of the planning process. Right. So they'll give us all the data and say, hey, you know, you we did a risk tolerance and we're going to use assume the 60-40 model that's built in there. So we'll apply the 60-40 model to the projection. And let's okay. just say that that gives you a 6.5% return. 
is their average. Let's just say that. So this is what your plan looks like if you can achieve a six and a half percent return. How you get that is a totally different conversation. That's portfolio management. And here's how we do it at our firm, because every firm is very different on their investment philosophy. And here's, you know, we think we can get you six and a half. And actually, we think we're going to bring you alpha doing all these other strategies, tax planning strategies, distribution strategies, um, uh, asset location strategy, you know, so you can kind of talk through all those other things, how you're going to improve it even more. And so then I've, I, I've got to ask from the other end, like, how does this work from an E&O perspective? Like, what's, what are the consequences or risks if a not good recommendation manages to get its way into this process? Yeah, yeah. So, so according to Colorado, when I got audited, so we are a fiduciary to the end client as well as the advisor client, right? Now, we don't have a contract with the end client um, and the advisor is a fiduciary for their client. So I think we are once removed from that because ultimately they have to approve whatever is presented to the client. That said, I, we don't even actually know what gets presented to the client. So we could write in this whole disclaimer mm. about, you know, this recommendation while objective may increase the fee you're paying to XY right. company, they might remove that before it goes to the client. I mean, hopefully not. Okay. So you've got an obligation to be writing and crafting fiduciary recommendations, but you're not actually in control of the end recommendation. That's up to the advisor. So if, they, if they're going to take your recommendations and change them, right. that's on the advisor's shoulders. Right. Which is why we keep copies of everything that we provide. So what what about from the other end? Like, I mean, just not to get negative, like someone's gonna be worried about it. You know, what what happens if you made the recommendation, the advisor runs with the recommendation you made, and it turns out there's a problem with the recommendation? I haven't come across that. I mean, we carry E and O, which okay. extends to our planners. Um, we haven't had that issue yet. Thank goodness. Where's some wood? I can knock on some wood. Well, it does help to have <laughs> do this for a living and be focused on it with a review process. Yeah, right. And so, how does this work from the 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 staffing end? Then, like, who who works at the firm doing what? Because how how do you actually get all this implemented? So uh, it was just me when I started in 2011, and then, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, you know. You start working seven days a week and you can't take uh-huh. vacations and you're like, okay, this isn't working. And I'm, I have an hourly model, not ideal because there's only so many hours in a day. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, in 2014, I think it was, I hired my first planner. Um, they are contractors. And um, this gal, her husband had relocated. She was a CFP. She had gone to Texas Tech, worked for a fee-only firm in New York, and then worked for an ultra-high net worth firm out of Dallas. And um, and she was pregnant. And she's like, I don't want a nine-to-five job. I want flexibility. And so that was opened the door. Well, and she was amazing. I mean, I think if, okay. if that had, relationship had not worked out, it might have just stayed me only. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, when you have a bad first experience, you're like, okay, this is too much trouble. I'm not going to deal with it. And I've had bad ones since. So it's, it's not like, you know, it's perfect, but I do think the first one is sort of the tester. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, that so that kind of opened my eyes to a wonderful talent pool of of and this happened to be at the time it happened to be women wanting to start families but there were CFPs and they wanted to keep doing their work they just didn't want to do it on a set schedule a 9 to 5 schedule interesting and so you you got to tap into a there's just a unique market of women who had the expertise and the desire and ability to work but specifically wanted something that was flexible and part-time, right? They, they want to go 100% with 50% of their time. Right. For which you have a very unique offering because you can scale that to the advisor. Because almost by definition, no one advisor is likely using 100% of, no. uh, uh, of a person's time. If they were, they would probably just hire their own person at that point because right. it's yep. cheaper to put them on salary if you're going to pay for a full 40 hours a week all year long. Right. So you get a particularly good fit for those who had the expertise but only wanted to do, well, I guess, like I want to work 100%, 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I joke around, but y- you want something done, give it to a busy mom. I mean, they're the most organized, <laughs> best at time management. You know, they're going to knock it out and get it done <laughs> yep. in the shortest amount of time possible because they have 18 other things they've got to get done. <laughs> Interesting. And, and then so, that and so has that continued to be the model of how it's grown and scaled? No. So then it, it evolved. Um, so that, that it became interesting. So more, you know, XYPN started. And I think more people wanted to go out and strike out on their own and see if they could do it. But they're terrified that they would not have money for the first, you know, three mm-hmm. years, whatever. And so now I would say half of our team have their own RIA and are building up their business. And the other half are planners that truly, they don't want to work with end clients. They just love doing the planning work. And so, interesting. yeah, it's been really fun. It, you know, eventually they transition out, which is fantastic. That means their business is doing great. Right. So I love, I love the idea of, of helping Ouch. both of those groups of people while also helping advisors. Interesting. So, so the initial base was a lot of those folks that, just only wanted a 50% capacity job or whatever percentage was like a, mm-hmm. they only wanted a p- part-time work because of external dynamics like parenthood mm-hmm. and now you're also getting a segment who are i guess at least I would think of it like starting a business and want some side hustle money while they're ramping up their business and so their side hustle money is I'm an experienced advisor I just don't have clients of my own yet in this firm so I'm going to do para planning work an outsourced virtual CFP work for delegated planning while I build my client base. And at some point in two to four years or however long it takes to build on my client base to a critical mass, then I can dial down the, the virtual CFP work and focus on my client base. Exactly. And what's interesting is one one of the gals uh, that I have, I keep asking her, she had little ones at home and she had her own business and she had acquired another business in the meantime, and I kept checking in with her. How are things going? Do you? Oh, do, because I need a long runway to transition a planner away, right? right. Um, she said it, she's supporting two firms right now. She's like, I love these guys. I know exactly what they want. I can get it done. I will do it for as long uh-huh. as I'm working. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> so, the other platform, at least that I know of out there, where advisors have done something similar is particular well i guess for both of these segments the the folks that go out to simply paraplanner and list 
you know, that they're available for pair planning, outsource services, and just try to get a firm or two to work with directly in either that same vein. Either I just mm-hmm. want part-time work, so I'm trying to find part-time work, or I'm building my firm and I want a side hustle while I build my firm. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, like, how do you distinguish just advisors that go you know, list and do that and simply pair planning versus the ones that come to work with you directly? I think the ones that tend to come to work with us directly like the idea that A, we've been around a long time, um, and B, we have a process, and we're a company, not just an individual, and we're an RIA. So we are subject. So, you know, the this is where the compliance comes in. Um, you know, they're required to do their due diligence. If they work for a broker-dealer, there's a whole other, you know, hoops you have to go through right. to get approved. Um, you know, I kind of joke around, like, I'm not just some guy in the basement with a laptop working on your your client's right. plans. We've we've done background checks where we do the vetting, you know, all that stuff. So how do you handle things like if if it's an advisor who's doing para planning work while they're building up their own advisory firm as well, is there a a conflict of like I'm you know Sue, I'm going to give my clients to one of your planners that's also doing their own firm. Like, do I have to worry that they're, they're going to try to take my client away or that like, they're going to try to establish a relationship with my client that my client might go to them. Right. Um, so we have non-competes, we have NDAs. Uh, we're always happy to sign off on the advisor if they have one as well. Um, it's never happened before. I mean, and we're not communicating directly with the end client anyway. Like, well, yeah, I guess that's a good point. How, how many firms that work with you even tell the clients that they work with you, I mean, do and, clients know? Yeah, right. That's that's an interesting thing. So that's a compliance. So um, it really depends on their compliance. Uh, you know, their privacy policy has to allow for them to share information to do the job they were hired to do. Okay. Um, I'd say a handful of the smaller firms put us on their website as part of the team. This is part of our professional network team. It just has to be clear: we don't work for you; we work with you. Okay. So it's not just me. I've got a CFP team that looks over my stuff. And I think that's the other benefit too, you know, having 15 planners, we've got people in all different kinds of expertise, some super strong estate planning people. We've got a CPA and two enrolled agents. Um, So even if that planner isn't a hundred percent on something, they can reach out to the team and get more information. So I guess the other thing I'm wondering in that context, like when, when the business has a number of people who are contractors and there's you know just there's going to be some shift in who's doing the planning work over time as you know mm-hmm. as they're building their businesses and then three or four years from now their business gets to a good point and they stop and you bring someone else on like how do you how do you internally manage things like quality control of the plans to make sure that like that that individual uh virtual cfp is actually crafting appropriate accurate recommendations and doing the analysis properly. Right. So we have pretty in-depth training when we're onboarding a new planner. Um, I tend to micromanage a lot during that time period. I'm not teaching them to be planners, but um, I am teaching them our process. And then as they are completing plans and writing recommendations, I'm reviewing them. I'm talking through how I would maybe uh, communicate something why did they look at this? Did they look at that? Um, and so we we have a pretty extended time period for doing that, and it, it becomes pretty evident those that are, you know, 
excellent and good to go and those that might need longer time. Okay. The other thing I was going to say too, interestingly about the worrying about clients uh, leaving and going to the planner, I actually had one advisor who called me and said, well, I want my planner to be my emergency succession plan since he already knows my clients and knows all their work. Oh, interesting. How would that work? And I'm like, you have to work it directly out with them because that's between your RIA and that person's RIA. (laughs) I don't want to be involved in that. But I thought it was pretty, pretty smart. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. I like that. I like that idea. So what surprised you the most about building this virtual planning support business over the past 10 plus years? Um, uh, the, the fact that it's, you know, I, I really started it to create a job for myself. I had had a couple iterations of different positions uh, throughout my time in the profession, you know, with it culminating in, I was going to take over another advisor's business. And, um, and finally, I don't know why it took me so long. I finally realized I really just like doing the planning work. And, um, and that you didn't want to actually take over their whole business. No. Then you have to I actually deal with all the clients. Deal with the clients. And, <laughs> and, you know, my previous firm did a lot of private placement investment work. And I thought, I don't have any expertise in this. I don't, this is not my strength. And I really just like doing the planning work. So, so yeah, I, I um, talked to a virtual assistant uh, that we had been using and she said, well, why, you know, why don't you just go and become an outsourced CFP. And I thought, well, who's going to hire? I mean, I had, I had my master's and I had my CFP, but I thought, well, who's going to hire? <laughs> who's going to hire? And this was in 2011. So technology was just kind of getting there. People were just right. kind of getting out of the paper world. Um, but at least there were um, servers you could long on to at the time. It wasn't all cloud-based. And um, Right. You still got actually VPN into a <laughs> server that's sitting sitting in their closet yes. of their um, office. Yeah, and and I had been in a NAPFA study group with some folks, and so I had talked to them, and they said, "Yep, I I would hire you in a heartbeat," you know. And I thought, "Okay, let's try it and see." And and it really was just creating a job for myself. And then, like I said, when I got so busy, I thought, "Okay, well, let's just see how this works." Hiring, you know, bringing on another planner, and and it's yeah, it's kind of just grown from there. And then with COVID, um, I think there was a whole segment of advisors that would never have worked remotely or allowed it that have now opened, um, opened up to that possibility. And are you seeing that from your end, like an an uptick in growth and inquiries from firms in a, in a post COVID era? Yes. Yeah. It's funny. One of the, the firms I was talking about before where we kind of have come and gone with them probably five times over the 10 years. Um, yeah he was very against hiring remote planners and he kind of lived in an area of the country that was not ideal. It was hard to find people to come there. Um, and he, I think he solely now works from home <laughs> and he's hired at wow. least full-time employees that are, so it's really amazing to see. I mean, it really does open up the talent pool options. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Just working too hard. Well, and it, working all the time. And so, that was that was a lot, and just January this year, I stopped supporting advisors myself for the first time, and uh, because it wow. just running the business was it was taking over, um, which is a little bittersweet. You know, I loved the advisors. I, I you know I was worried about not having contact with clients, but our advisors became our clients, right? And um, so that 
that was uh, unfounded. And then, but now I worry about, am I losing my chops <laughs> as a mm-hmm. financial planner, right? Cause I'm not in there all the time. Um, although I do jump in uh, during tax time, like I said, we've got a CPA and two enrolled agents. So I'll, I'll cover um, when needed for that, when it happens. But um, yeah. And then of course my plan this year was to really focus on, on delegated planning and getting our foundations, you know, better secured for scaling now that we're at 15. I I mean, I have to start thinking like a CEO now, not just a manager, which is what I was doing. And then um, we launched planning zoo (laughs) at the same time. So now I'm working too hard again. (laughs) So what is planning zoo? So planning zoo offers data entry services only. So going back to our, if you split planning into three pieces. Um, and really the objective for that was to teach and train aspiring CFPs. So I would get calls. First, I would get calls for data entry only, and I would tell them that we're not a good fit for that. Um, Then I would get calls from graduating students or career changers that want to enter and they want to work for delegated. And I'm like, well, you don't have the experience. Like I can't charge what I'm charging if, if you've not been in front of clients and done thousands of plans already. Right. And, so we were finding that the the new planners, the planning firms weren't hiring them because they didn't have the time and the resources to train them. So they were being hired by the larger broker dealers or custodians, Vanguard, Fidelity, you know, Mass Mutual, that kind of stuff. And and it was frustrating because I want the planning firms, I want them right. to join planning firms. So this was our solution. So, so Caleb Brown of New Planner Recruiting and Carrie Jones, who works with me at Delegate Planning and myself, um, did a beta test this summer. And so we are using the real case projects that advisors will give us, using the source documents to teach the students or the new planners, I should say, teach them planning. Um, so we're training them in the programs so they, they can absolutely, you know, enter data into the programs, but, but more than that, really teaching them, what can you learn from this piece of source documentation, um, from this tax return? What can we gather from this tax return? Just even a mortgage statement. We're explaining what is an amortization? How does that work? Hey, there's a, an address listed on this mortgage statement. We can now go to Zillow and find out the value and add that into the program. And we can find property taxes so we can carve that cool. piece out. Mm-hmm. And they're learning some really, they're actually learning some really advanced planning strategies. So, so what we do at the end of the project is the advisor gets, they gets, they get the data entered, of course, they get a printout of what was entered from the program, but they get um, what we call a zoo inspection report. (laughs) And so the first part is really just commentary about the quality of the data they provided, what was missing, what's critical for them to update, how we entered certain things and any assumptions we had to make. And then they get a very high level of here, here are some big red flags that we see are considerations you should look at. Um, but then with the email that says, okay, we've uploaded these reports, here's what the zoo crew got to learn. And some of the things I've seen are qualified business income deductions for REITs. Mm-hmm. They learned about um, gifting low basis stock for charities. So, so they're, the zookeeper is the experienced planner that oversees the zoo crew, who are the new planners. One by one, as they review the quality, they double check the work, make sure it's accurate, but they use that time yeah. to also train the new planners on financial right. planning concepts. So our hope is 
we're looking for high turnover on our zoo crew so that when they graduate, they can be hired by a planning firm and add value day one. And then from the advisory firm end, like how does this work? How does this price? How is it different than delegated planning? So it's just data entry. You're just getting the data entry piece. If that's all you need and you like to do the planning and the analysis yourself, this is perfect. Or maybe you're a firm that does, um, maybe they do like a mini plan for their prospects before they get the client to commit to a full plan. So they just want to get the data in there to show the client what it's looking like. Or we found it's good for advisors that do surge meetings. They have a lot of plan updates that need to be done in a short amount of time. Right. Um, It's a flat fee. It's $250 for a basic case, and then we add $100 per complexity. So if you're an e-money and you've got to enter rental properties, that would be a complexity. In Money Guide, that would not be a complexity because you don't have to add a bunch of fields. It's just you know the one right. entry. Um, and we're shooting for a seven-day turnaround. Okay. Um, and our so we've got we're we did our beta test this summer with e-money. We've just got our Money Guide Zoo Keeper, who they're ready to go now for Money Guide. And we've got our Right Capital Zookeeper ready to go. So January 1, we should be able to support all three programs. And we're, I think what we're going to do is t- we have, gosh, I think 75 applicants of Zoo Crew people. And so okay. I think we're wow. going to, yeah, I know. We need advisors to, to get us some cases so we can train them. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to split it into three sleeves and have a group for each program. And then if they choose to stay on the next, so we'll do spring, summer, fall. If they choose to stay on the next period, they'll, they can switch and learn a different program. So by the time maybe they graduate, they, they're experts in all three programs and they've done a hundred or 200 cases. And, and out of curiosity, just why the separate offering and planning zoo, as opposed to simply having a, a data entry tier with delegated planning? Um, number one, I couldn't do this by myself. It would definitely require more people. In fact, it was Caleb and I, and, and I kind of dragged Carrie in <laughs> because I was like, I can't, I can't even handle doing all of this right now. Two, um, Planning Zoo is not a registered investment advisor. So okay. it's separate from all of that piece because we're not giving recommendations. Um, we, we, we're not going to have to keep copies of documentation. Um, what we've done is we've set up right. a virtual desktop environment so when they log in they can't download copy paste they you know the students can't do any of that stuff and once the case is done everything's gone it's deleted we don't need it anymore okay interesting so so as you look back on this like what do you know now about building and scaling up virtual support services that you wish you could go back and like tell you from 10 years ago mm. well i think my downfall is i want to help everybody <laughs> I think a lot Mm -hmm. of advisors have that downfall and then you realize it's really not cost effective. Right. So, so you have, I'll bring on planners um, that want to work, but they really only are putting in five or 10 hours a month, which would be fine, except that I pay a per user per month fee for the software programs that we're using. Right. So some of them are just breaking even, but they're really good. And the advisors really like them. And I I think, okay, do I just keep them happy and just don't, make anything on them, which, which isn't terrible, except there's still all the compliance stuff that I have to do. Right. So it really does end up costing me. Um, so thinking through, okay. And again, this is me now trying to put on my CEO hat this year yeah. <laughs> to go back. Yeah. I mean, I kind of went back through all my revenues and profits over the years f- preparing for this 
interview, this yeah. call. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Like, when did it jump and where the profits have stayed the same or, or not? Um, so it, it's been really interesting. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors looking to come into the industry today and, and start their career? I think I would say, especially if you're younger, you know, it's worth trying it out. Like if you want to go out on your own, it's worth trying it out. I, I came, my dad worked for IBM, you know, and, and took the train into the city every year. And I always just figured I'd work for some, I'd be an employee for some big company. Mm. And that's just the way it worked back when I was growing up. And then I moved to Colorado and have probably 10 friends that have started their own business. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that is so risky. I, I can't yeah. imagine doing that. And then, and then you, you try it and it, and it works. And I mean, you have to prepare yourself. I'm not saying just go do it and fingers crossed, but um, I think it can be done. I think it's worthwhile. I think it, it gives back in so many ways between helping clients, helping advisors, um, just educating people, um, trying to get the new planners into the industry. I mean, there's just, it's, it's just a really, I think a really great profession. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that come up is even the, the word success means different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderfully successful growth journey with delegated planning over the past decade. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I would say, you know, making a living doing what I enjoy. Hmm. I've worked in a couple, I, I, well, not just this industry, but others, and um, and they're fine. But you come home and you're unplugged, and you're like, okay, I'm done with that for the day. But this, if it's something you really enjoy, it's kind of always on your mind, and you're always thinking about it and different ways to make it better. So, so definitely that. And then, you know, I'm happiest when I feel like I've helped others and provided value. And so advisors are really great about getting back to us and say this this went really well. And so that's that's always exciting to hear um, about how they value our partnership, and then and then also helping the planners, like g- helping people start their own firm or start their family, or maybe they're maybe they're just shifting, like they've done the nine to five thing and now they want to travel more. Um, so just giving opportunities to other people uh, has been really fun to see. Very cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.